All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck, crastinators? That was some. That was one someone sent me, and it just dropped into my head. How's it going? This is WTF. I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. A, fair, a lot of info on this show. I wouldn't fast forward if you, you know, it, there's a lot of things going on with me. There's some changes that uh, some people need to know. I'm not trying to hold you here, but uh, you should probably you should probably hang out today on the show. It's a very compelling um, couple of guests. We have uh, Jeff Fairzig and uh, Laura Albert. Now you probably don't know those two. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. Jeff uh, Jeff made a, a doc a while back, I believe, called "The Devil and Daniel Johnston." That was a great documentary about a very interesting troubled man who made some fairly amazing music. And uh, and he's done another doc on the J.T. Leroy phenomenon. I don't know if you know about that, but I'll explain it to you more in a minute. J.T. Leroy had a, wrote three books. Two of them were huge bestsellers, and it was a a, 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 a astounding literary phenomenon. And the only problem was that J.T. Leroy did not exist. Now, a pseudonym is not unusual in writing books, but. Uh, but this was a this pseudonym sort of manifested into a complete. Um, uh, uh, I don't even know what you would call it. Uh, it. A woman, Laura Albert, who wrote these books as J.T. Leroy, then manifested J.T. Leroy by casting her with her sister-in-law, and then she became someone else. And they moved through the literary world, through the world of celebrity, through the world of fashion, internationally uh, as this. Um, complete I, I don't even want to call it a charade you know was it a performance art piece was it uh, a hoax or was it just an artist's sort of movement through what ultimately was her work and and her destiny to become uh, a, a more complete person and complete artist it, it's it's in, it's insane but it's beautiful and they're both here I talked to Jeff first and then uh, he leaves and then I talked to Laura who is J.T. Leroy, or who J.T. Leroy lives within. It, it was pretty amazing, very emotional uh, conversation with, uh, with Laura today. It's powerful. Brace yourself. So now, big news. There's, there's a lot of news I got to deal with. First, sad news, Gene Wilder is dead uh, at 83, I believe, and really one of the most, just what a beautiful man. What an amazing performer what a great actor and seriously one of the funniest people to ever bless the planet you know, on film or in person or however you encounter gene wilder what a, what a great great talent and and just uh it's it's sad he did live a long life and he was ill at the end um but uh but man man the producers young frankenstein the richard Pryor films uh uh silver streak and uh blazing saddles uh, he had this bit part in Bonnie and Clyde that was beautiful. He, you know, I, he just, just great. What a fucking funny guy. What a, a beautiful fucking being. What an amazing talent, man. It really was sad. And I, some of you may remember that uh, I told this very bizarre but very true story that relates to Gene Wilder. I, I talked to Mel Brooks about Gene Wilder a, a bit, and that was pretty amazing, but... This happened to me when I was younger and I was on drugs and I was hanging out with Sam Kennison uh, late night at the comedy store or in the house behind the comedy store. We were going at it, talking the talk, laying the shit down. 
coked out of our minds. And I was in Sam's face. And I said, how'd you do it, man? How'd you figure it out? How'd you figure out your hook? How'd you figure out your, your, you know, your style? And I'm, you know, I'm annoying when I'm like that. And Sam looked at me and he goes, Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder. That's all he gave me. It actually took me years to really put it together that if you listen to Sam's build, oh, 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 and the way he moves through a, a routine where it says, that's Gene Wilder. And then Sam just adds, oh, 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 like, it was the build, the pace, the amazing Wilder drive shaft, just punching through. He does it in every movie at least once. He just elevates, amplifies, keeps building and building to hysteria. Oh, my God. Rest in peace, Gene Wilder. You were one of the best. So my news, I have to change some tour dates because I was cast in a Netflix series called glow gorgeous ladies of wrestling i am the male lead opposite the lovely and amazing uh, allison brie this is being executive produced by Gingy cohen and uh i i tell you man i i you know i it came sort of came out of nowhere uh and it's it's gonna be really a blast so i'm thrilled i'll be honest with you it was really the thing I wanted to do next with my life. The, the thing I wanted to really try to do was act. I wanted to try to act in a fun show where I didn't have to write it. I didn't have to produce it. I didn't have to play myself. And, and this, this happened, this amazing opportunity to be in this Netflix series, Glow, with Alison Brie. So how did it happen? Do you want to know? I'll tell you. My agent, uh, Karina Nahai, uh, just sent me these sides. She said, you know, this is out there. Uh, I don't know if you'll be interested. Uh, they weren't looking for me. I was not called in. I'm not a big shot. But I read the uh, the script and I read the uh, the scenes and I'm like, I can do this guy. This guy is somebody I can relate to and I can I can do this guy. So the deal was they're not really reading people in L.A. I don't know what at what point in the casting um, process they were at. But uh, she said I could put myself on tape. Uh, that's old style talking i could record myself on my phone doing the scene and so i'm like okay so i went out this takes place in the 80s it's based on the actual gorgeous ladies of wrestling and uh and i i I put on a lacoste shirt and i went down to um society of spectacle and had the 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 gals down there uh, loan me some frames that were sort of aviator style they looked 80s to me mid 80s and i i just i decided he needed those kind of frames and i went and and i had the woman who's been uh, uh, my trainer who's been you know i've been working out with uh, uh amanda carniero and uh and she's an actress so i said will you read this with me and then my my uh, my part-time assistant frank capello you know hold my phone we went over to my office and we shot like three takes of this scene and i sent it off to the agent to karina and uh and that's how i got it i mean they knew who i was but they're not gonna just hire me because they know who i am i got it from a taped audition don't hear that too often so exciting right right now 
moving into our guests today. It's fairly complicated, uh, but but it is by nature complicated. The the documentary, the uh, which is called Author, the J.T. Leroy story, opens in theaters on Friday, September 9th. And the basics are, I don't know how old you guys are, or where you were when this happened, but uh, this all went down in the early 2000s. The books came out, Sarah, and uh, The Heart is de- Deceitful Above All Things, and the publishing industry and the literary community went wild for J.T. Leroy, who was this teenage uh, hustler, a drug-addicted hustler, uh, who had no parents, whose mother was a, a truck stop hooker. Um, and just these books are beautiful. They definitely stand the test of time. But the question, the real question becomes, do they stand the, the test of the insanity that went on around it? Now, these books were real and they are real and they're beautiful books. They're real fucking masterpieces of literature, these two books. And the bottom line was, is that J.T. Leroy was a real voice, a real person. But that person lived within uh, Laura Albert. It's a very complicated story, but she created this, I wouldn't call it an alter ego, but it was a pseudonym. It was a person that spoke through her, um, J.T. Leroy. But now when the books become popular, the world, the publishing world, and uh, the world of books and people who wanted to see J.T. Leroy and, and hear him read, you know, they, they, they demanded it in a way. And instead of just saying, you know, it's a pseudonym, it's not really... Uh, a, a person because she'd already established this person with so many people on the phone she needed laura needed to sort of make this right so laura albert uh sort of enlists her sister-in-law to play jt Leroy, and then laura becomes this other character um who is jt Leroy's manager slash handler and then laura's husband becomes another character and it just moves like that for years they tour the world with uh, this this woman playing this teenage boy jt Leroy. the books deal with sexuality deal with um uh a lot of stuff uh, around gender that hadn't been dealt with at the time but it also just turned the the literary community and the world on just on its head that this this celebrated genius writer um, made these amazing books and then it just turns out through a series of uh, revealing articles and just this crashing of this wave that it was uh, revealed to be not real and it had been going on a while. So this is the story and Jeff Fairzig, who uh, who did uh, the, the doc is with me now and we'll lay it out a bit and then I'll come back for a second in between Jeff and Laura who I spoke to alone after Jeff. I watched your last movie at some point. Was it Devil and and Daniel Johnson? Mm -hmm. Johnston? Yeah. That was a disturbing movie in a good way. I appreciate that. You know, not a plug or anything, but it is a simple fact. Ten years ago, I made that film. Mm Mm-hmm. And now we're going to have a Sony Picture Classics Blu-ray coming out next month. Oh, congratulations. So what compelled you towards uh, this? Well, obviously, the J.T. Leroy story, I remember it happening, but I was not that engaged in the literary world, nor did I give a shit. Oddly, though, at some point I read Stephen Beachy's first novel, the guy who actually wrote the first New York Times piece that started to expose the performance or hoax or, or however you want to frame it. 
but I didn't know anything about this story and I, and I knew it was compelling and all I remember about it when it happened was like this woman man was not a woman man and this book were they were I remember the, the, the argument was that she pulled off this massive hoax on the literary world but what really becomes for me and I think for you and, and probably for people in the film itself the real conflict is how does this diminish the work ultimately or in does the big it? Pic- it doesn't. Yeah, that's the question. One of them. Yes, it right. raises many questions. Right. Well, what compelled you? How how did you get into it? Well, I was I was right there with you. I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. what a JT Leroy even was. Yeah. Nor had I even heard of the scandal in 2006 when the New York Times broke the scandal. You, you oh, really? You didn't know? Really? Not so a you, thing. Mm-hmm. Wasn't on your radar. Nor had I read the books. Right. Was not on my radar. Right. My whole trip is nonfiction and new journalism. Yeah. And I'm always looking for a great story. Right. There's nothing I love more than a great truth is stranger than fiction story. A buddy of mine, a journalist, Paul Cullum, mm-hmm. he turned me on to it a few years after the story broke. Paul Cullum, I feel like I know that guy. Yeah, he's a great writer. He's written yeah. uh, LA Weekly cover stories, things like that. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, Paul turned me on. He knows my taste. And the hook at the time for me was, you know, quote unquote, the greatest literary hoax of all time. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. How many are there? Jersey, Kozinski, where there's a couple? There's more than a few, right? But well, I mean, but, with, but it's like a question of memoir, right? Some of it. I mean, this was bigger because it involved other people. <laughs> and But like, you know, usually a literary host comes down to, is that real or not real? If, it's, if this is being presented as real, is it real or is it not real? On the page. Well, listen, this was called a literary hoax at right. the time, and it was fiction that went way off the page. Right. We've never seen a pseudonym or a pen name like this in history. Right. Um, because, of course, J.T. Leroy, uh, there was an avatar. There was a body out there that was not the person. Mm. So that was unique. Now, what happened was I, I read, I mean, got it generated a massive amount of ink and think pieces. Yeah. I read it all. And I just had this feeling. I said, you know, there has to be more to the story than we're being told. Which was what after you read everything? What was the basic story in your mind, having done all the research that was available on J.T. Leroy? Well, it was unknown, but there was one voice glaringly missing, and that was the voice of the author, Laura Albert, the author of the fiction on and off the page. Because she pulled out. She had held her story back. And therefore, her, her telling was invisible, didn't exist. And I wanted to hear that voice. So I reached out to her. I sent her Devil and Daniel Johnston. Mm-hmm. You know, and for listeners who perhaps have not seen it, it the, the central theme is the intersection of madness and creativity, which is a subject I find infinitely fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, she watched the film and it spoke to her. And then she decided that she would share her story with me. And that's how we began to go down this road. Now, for people that don't know, which I imagine is most people, Let's get a timeline in place. J.T. Leroy writes a book, and it's hugely popular. It's got defenders in the literary community. She has reached out. He, he has, J.T. Leroy, this young um, son of a prostitute, of a truck stop prostitute who, has, uh, who is HIV positive, has uh, drug problems, gender problems, was abused, is, uh, is a shattered uh, person, and has written this beautiful, and, and it, it is still a beautiful book, and is very poetic and painful, and, and uh, like nothing anyone has ever seen at that time. 
Right. Well, that's basically what went down. It was a, a book published. Uh, it was called Sarah. Yeah. It was a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was definitely of the Southern Gothic, Flannery O'Connor, Harry Cruz tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was widely reviewed and uh, became an international bestseller, mm-hmm. as well as the second book, the collection of short stories, The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, which, as I came to learn, was written previous to that, those short stories. So this is 1999. Yeah. That both books come out. Uh, they're about a year apart, back to back. Yeah, right. Now, it, what what you reveal in the in the film through Laura's eyes and also through the eyes of the people that were her champions was that this was a character or or a part of her or somebody speaking through her, however you want to see it, or mental illness, whatever you wanted to frame it as, depending on your particular uh, uh, mystical or psychological discipline. This character evolved out of a relationship with a phone, a, a, a teen counselor, really. Yes. Uh, she, as we came to learn, or I came to learn in the film, was addicted to calling telephone hotlines and helplines. And uh, she, as it turns out, had been calling hotlines, helplines, since she was a young girl. I found her old notebook when she's a child, Laura Albert. And there were pages and pages of telephone hotline she would call any hotline she can get her hands on in the margins of those hotlines hundreds and hundreds of little boy girl doodles yeah. which i ultimately animated yeah she desperately those wanted- are all that was all her art yeah oh interesting so this is a woman that you establish at the beginning of the film as as having a difficult childhood uh laura that is uh being overweight having a uh, absent father an abusive mother a little sister jewish brooklyn but uh, sort of uh, not mentally well and, and progressively more unstable as a child. Yeah, as you see in the film, she's institutionalized multiple times. It's just a fact. And she ends up in a group home for girls um, where she became a ward of the state. And, At 16, yeah. which is odd. That, I mean, that in a sense, that, that is really a flagrant disregard of parenting responsibilities at that age. Her parents gave up custody to put her in this group home. She needed a lot of help, and she was still on those hotlines calling as boys all those years. She, I got boxes and boxes of her phone bills. She would dominate the phones, yeah. and to quote her, that was her, her life in fiction. She never knew where the story was going to go. She never knew who, she, who was going to pick up the other end of that phone. She didn't know if a story was going to last a day or a, or a week. With a particular operator. Correct. And with a particular character. Yeah. So by the time she calls as Terminator, Jeremiah Terminator Leroy, yeah. in San Francisco, I don't know, 20-something years later, she calls a hotline, Dr. Terrence Owens, guy picks up. That could have been the 17,000th call she's ever made as a boy at this point in time. Right. But you know, this is like this is some interesting thing. Now, since you brought it up, and you know, obviously, in your mind, you, you don't see that there's a possible spoiler to this movie. No, I, I mean there isn't. There isn't. I mean, we can talk about anything you want because it's still a fun ride. Well, no, but yeah, yeah, I mean, you made a decision that stood out to me as as mildly dubious. Okay, go for it. What is that? Which is, you know, you decide to reveal the the depth. And the nature of the sexual abuse, oh, at, at, as like uh, a capper almost at the end of the movie. You must have thought about that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, 
it's beyond foreshadowed in the first act. No, no. I, yeah. I, I, no, no, I'm not defending right, it. I'm right. going to tell you what I did. Yeah. Yeah, so it's foreshadowed. If you can't figure out that that was going on, you're not paying attention. Right. Regardless, uh, that's the inciting incident, and it's the literary holdback. The film is called Author. Yeah. And that is where that scene lives and where I wanted it to live and where it really resonated because what I was doing was playing with her, her backstory like Memento, and that... It goes in reverse, and it catches up with itself with the A story, the saga of J.T. Leroy with all of the deceit and lies that's baked into it. Mm-hmm. And then it comes together at the end, and hopefully we arrive at a whole person. Okay. All right. So that was the intent. Yes. I feel that. I feel that because you go through waves with Laura through the film. Yeah, and I'm, we're going to talk to her in a minute. Um, you go through waves with her through the film about how you feel about what she did. Now, as an artist myself, and I rarely call myself that, but as somebody who respects that, that, you know, despite anything that happened, whether I want to look at it as she really, you know, she really fucking, you know, did a number on the literati community and the celebrity community and, you know, the affected nature of parasitical businesses that revolve around artistic talent. That you know that she really turned them on their nose, but you know, but then you go a little deeper, and and, she, and it's sort of like, well, she deceived these people, and then you start to think, well, isn't it genius that these people want to see what they were they want to see because her British accent was not great, and you know there was enough stuff around the performances and around everything else that that if anybody was sort of halfway going like, what the fuck is this, they would have been able to s- smell something. There were many tells, tells. But like to, to bring the audience who's listening up to speed, once these books became the celebration of the literary community and then moved into the artistic community, the world of the intelligentsia and a certain type of celebrity is just in love. It was a zeitgeist moment right. in publishing history. We right. don't see it often. It was First of all, it was transgressive fiction. This was pretty hardcore material. Right. Like, was, well, she loves the Dennis Cooper, yeah. who is like, you know, you read his stuff. I haven't read it in years, but when I did read it, I was like, I'm going to have to give this a rest for about a decade. I felt the same way. And he's, <laughs> and he's a great writer. His books great. try, you know, wow. I mean, talk about pushing things. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, it's of that tradition. And yet we, there was like a rock star-like phenomenon at these book readings. Like, you don't, listen, I got friends who write books. Go to a reading. What is yeah, it, like yeah. 15 people there? <laughs> yeah, dude, four people know the guy. Right. This is <laughs> this is lines around the block in multiple cities for like seven years around the world. I saw this. I saw the footage. Yeah. And this is not J.K. Rowling. So, you know, something happened where fashion, Hollywood, uh, the literary community, it all converged around this writing and this persona. Right. And, and who can predict why? Well, but the, bat, the the fascinating thing about the movie that makes it so compelling is that Laura Albert, who is an insecure, uh, slightly emotionally shattered person, has written to put this thing out in the world. At the time that it becomes a great success, she's, she's overweight. She's uh, had a baby with the guitar player she's living with. Doesn't seem like, seems like an okay relationship. Seems like Bay Area, kind of like we're just hanging out, doing weird shit relationship. And now she's got this bestseller and she, uh, and it's a pseudonym. And she can't go out. She can't, you know, they want to have readings. She's uh, has to stay in character because of her own emotional uh, problems. 
And she has uh, celebrities do these readings, or the publisher has. I imagine it's the publisher, and she okays them as JT Leroy. That sounds like a good event. But there's one scene in San Francisco where she has one of these readings. Her first reading, I think you're talking about. Uh-huh. And uh, she's there. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the, the, just first of all, just finding this footage where you have the author who at this point in time is morbidly obese. Uh-huh. And it's, I don't know how else to compare it to except to attending your own funeral, like that fantasy perhaps many of us right have. she has local san francisco writers yeah. reading the sections of the book and she's sitting there in the bookstore anonymous she's sitting there smiling gvelling loving the validation that you know she had no idea that she wrote a book and we listen we create art right we yeah throw it out into the world right it's pretty rare to have these kind of accolades showered upon you and i think in that way she's very human as an artist she wanted the validation for her work but she certainly was not able to be that person herself. And there she is in the audience watching her own reading, but no one knows she's there, and there's footage of that. It's pretty mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling, and also the element of, like, this isn't just a pseudonym. You know, even before the publishing of the book, she has talked to uh, to Dennis Cooper. She's talked to, uh, the what's the other Bruce writer? Benderson. Bruce Benderson. And others. And others. She has a relationship with this therapist who doesn't know any better. So they have all talked to JT Leroy. Yeah, the young, is, the young boy. Right, the young boy who Laura Albert is manifesting. Who she's literally calling behind the door in her bathroom that her boyfriend for a long time doesn't even know she's making these calls because she's ashamed of these, this addiction. Of calling therapists, helplines. Absolutely. So now she's created this character who has a relationship with major literary figures, and uh, they champion her. And well, they champion him, and him, they champion um, this writing that they receive via fax. Yeah, the fax machine. Yeah, the fax machine is and how they, she sent this material to people that she was looking for mentorship. Did you find that if the therapist that she had built a relationship with, that must be the longest relationship she had with a therapist, um, on the phone, encouraged her to write. Y do you think that this would have happened? Well, we'll never know. We I can just, ask her. We can ask her. I mean, all I know is the simple facts that she had been calling this guy, Dr. Terrence Owens, or I should say he had been calling her. You didn't get, you weren't able to get an interview with him post? Absolutely not. And he's never spoken to anybody publicly. Uh, but I do know. Well, is, that, is that because of patient confidentiality or because he feels. I've heard people theorize that, and I just don't know the legal fact of that. Uh -huh. I just know that he's never spoken to anybody, and that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. I do know that he had spoken to JT for an hour a day for three years before he suggests that you should write some of this down as a form of therapy. And then all of a sudden, Laura had an audience and then wrote balloons faxed it to him, and he passed it along to a friend, and next thing you know, it's getting passed around is, holy shit, this is great writing. And then all of a sudden, Terminator got published. It was never... The, it, it, she's Under told this many Terminator. times, yeah. but I, I've came to learn through my research, she never like said, hey, do you know uh, an editor? Do you know a book agent? Can you get me published? There was none of that going on. It was it a was, viral phenomenon. It was an, uh, an organic journey filled with a massive amount of deceit um and it's like with it's like uh, with the billy childish song you know i live by devious means but yeah there were unknown reasons of why this all transpired and now i believe you know the film has uncovered those reasons 
there there's a moment in the film where she knows what she's done. There's a moment where she is reluctant to have Terminator published as memoir because she knew that it was not. Correct. So because it wasn't memoir. <laughs> Simple as that. Right, but she but she, that's the that moment. That was the rules. Right, but that's, fiction has no rules, right? That's right. Absolutely. She was anthologized in a book that our buddy Jerry Stahl is in, yeah. uh, called Close to the Bone. Right. Terminator got in that particular anthology the big reviews, and that's what exploded the whole situation. Then she got a book deal, and she walked away from it because they wanted memoir. Right. She didn't even write again for years, and then she has this baby, and all of a sudden, to quote her, you know, the doors of perception or whatever she says opened and the next thing you know she she wrote a novel she like speed wrote it sends it off to the publisher and the the publisher says you wrote a novel she didn't even know she wrote a novel right next thing you know it got published as fiction and that was sarah and that's the first book that's the first book that was that came out as jt Leroy, correct fiction so basically jt Leroy existed as just a voice on the phone for many many years yeah when the book smashed, there was there was a problem. Yeah. What do I do? Yeah. So she, as you see in the film, stares at her androgynous sister-in-law, Savannah Knoop. Yeah. And thinks it's interesting. Hmm, why don't I put a wig, a hat, and sunglasses on you, and you'll be the body. Yeah. She was working at a, as a waitress at a, as a, in a Thai restaurant at this right, point in time. Right, right. And she gives her 50 bucks as a one-off, and they go off and they film German TV. And that seemed to have worked out. And that was like Frankenstein come to life. Right. And then this went on for, I think, seven years. Um, where where Laura Albert uh, creates a, a a character for herself. A British character. A British character named Speedy. Yes. Who manages JT. Yes. The, the very pushy handler. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so Speedy is always there. Speedy is absolutely there and, you know, blocking or running uh, interference for all of the journalists and celebs that... You but know, also want to get close to JT. Protecting, what's her sister-in-law's name? Savannah. Savannah from fucking up. Uh, that too, where they're sharing information because regardless that Savannah's out in public by day, uh, Laura is still the voice of JT on the phone by night. Right. And they have to download, as you hear in the film, to make sure they get their stories straight. Right. Because it gets very complicated. Right. She's spinning plates you know, like yeah. some sort of magician that we've never quite experienced before. Right. So two of the two of them are out in the world. They're meeting Bono and 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 Laura. That was an interesting sort of her her mystical understanding of show business and portals and 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 levels. Uh, yes, there, Bono summoned her. Yeah, yeah, summoned her, and this was this was the portal that JT was going through the portal that that Bono was ordaining. Or, or or giving her the, the magic code sure. to rise to the next level. Yeah, there's a U2 concert. It's right. somewhere in the arena in San Fran, and uh, Bono invites JT. Right. There's a surprise waiting. Uh, backstage passes are given to Speedy and JT. Right. Laura's the one snapping all those incredible photos, by the way. Of Bono and JT. And, and, uh, her, and, and the Edge. Savannah Don't leave the out edge. the Edge. I'm sorry. Right. I don't want to leave out the edge. But it was funny to me that the big advice was watch out for the assholes, basically. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, that great 
proverb of all show business, you know, never forget where you came from. Right. But what was I thought was what was more compelling ultimately was uh, U2's road manager speaking to Speedy as JT's road manager saying, do you see what my boy did for yours? And he mentioned him in Rolling Stone, mentioned uh, JT Leroy. Well, Bono, yeah, that, was, that was the surprise that Bono had flipped for the book, The Heart is Deceitful Above mm -hmm. All Things, and wanted to say, hey, I'm shouting to the world, I love this writer. Yeah. And then that was the big surprise right. during what they call the Bono talk. So now throughout all this, Laura Albert as, as um, Speedy is sort of feeling her oats. And starting to, you know, take better care of herself. Maybe whatever she did, she got uh, the the gastrointestinal uh, surgery. She's losing weight. Looks like she had a little other surgery. She's she's doing stuff. You know, she's getting. She's sort of like, hey, I'm a thing now. And she's starting to come out as Speedy, but also as Laura. You know, she had created a self masochistic Cyrano like relationship by having Savannah and wanting to be near the accolades for her art, but yet still now being like literally pushed to the side. People did not like Speedy. Right. But she knew that. She wanted people not to like Speedy. Right. Speedy's blocking. Right. But at the same time, everyone wants to hug, you know, basically the actor. Right. And she wants that hug desperately. Right. You describe the metamorphosis. Yeah. It's, it's very Shakespearean what she does to herself, you know, starting off with so much obesity and self-hatred and body yeah. issues goes through this surgery, ultimately becomes, you know, what she really wanted to be, which is the opposite. Uh, beautiful. It's very much like that Shag song, Philosophy of the World, yeah. which I've always thought was so simple yet brilliant. It's like, it's it's Freudian. It's always the opposite. It's like right. uh, the fat girls want to be thin, boys who ride motorcycles want to drive cars. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to... Laura Albert in this journey, and she does become more self-confident and more beautiful, and she's coming into her own. She's coming into her own, and uh, like simultaneously, within a year or two, uh, there's a fashion flurry around JT Leroy. Gus Van Zandt, who champions JT Leroy early on, is uh, collaborating with him on uh, Elephant, uh, which, you know, there is a scene in Elephant that uh, remains credited to uh, JT Leroy. Though the movie was improvised, he she is he is still on there as a consulting producer, uh, associate, associate producer. producer. Yes. <laughs> so all this stuff is happening. All this stuff in the movie, the arc, the sort of uh, denouement is is all building up. That uh, she needs to get straight. She needs to tell the truth, and yeah. she decides to do that with Billy Corrigan, which seems because Billy Corrigan. It seems like her and her husband love the Smashing Pumpkin. She believes that Billy's a portal of some kind or a gifted being who understands her, and she tells everything to Billy. Yeah, she had uh, this tingle because uh, Billy had written openly about uh, abuse. Right. So she felt that they were kindred spirits. In a real way. Yes. That absolutely. Billy would understand yeah. why this happened. Yes, and uh, she, when she met him, and they, or I should say Speedy met him at Spaceland right here yeah. in L.A. Uh, at his Juan show, mm -hmm. um, she opened up and she, it was the first person, you know, Who knew outside truth. of her small community of close confidants that she confided in, yeah. I'd like to ask her if that, if it was, was it bending her conscience? Did she, like, outside of knowing that it was way out of control and that it was bound to fall down, you know, did she feel bad for misleading people? Well, you're going to have to ask her that. Um, that's a question to ask her. Hey, you didn't ask her, did you? 
I don't remember specifically, did you feel bad? I think she absolutely, um, as you see in the third act of the film, there was a legitimate uh, mosaic of responses to all that had transpired. Some people, you know, wanted to burn her at the stake. That was very, very real. Mm. Other people, as you hear, you know, thought it was the greatest thing since sliced cheese. Yeah. And uh, sure. thought it was even better. Yeah. And then there were people who were very neutral and accepting, uh, like, for instance, you know, Gus Van Zandt. So well, I wonder if that remains. I, I, You'd have to ask him. I have no idea. I'll ask her. I can't talk sure. to him. Yeah, you can You could talk to her today. Yeah, I'll get to talk to her in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, ultimately, once the shit hit the fan with the Stephen Beachy article and then she gets fined for, what, mail fraud or for forging a signature, signing a contract, the legal repercussions She's are- She's found are, guilty of fraud in a court of law for signing the name J.T. Leroy, uh, obviously a person that does not exist on, yeah. a, on a contract, a movie right. option contract for the book Sarah. But the Writers Guild lets her off the hook on the in, in the sense that it, it's a pseudonym. They wrote an amicus brief. Right. Uh, defending, Did that savor the fine? No, not at all. That was just a way for the Authors Guild who felt that that trial and that verdict was unfair. They wanted to stand up for all writers to use a pseudonym for any reason they choose to, personal, political, sexual, uh, whatever they want. Interesting. That seems like a whole other movie. Well, it was just an interesting fact. That but the fact of it is, is that, you know, the, the the broader discussion that has to be had around this is that, you know, for whatever reason, if indeed Laura Albert was really seeking to to collect the pieces of herself, you know, whether she knew that during it or not, that, you know, the ultimate goal was to arrive a full person, hopefully. Because like towards the end, when all this shit, when it starts to hit the fan, she's now working with uh, Milch, uh, David, is it Michael? David Milch. David Milch on Deadwood because she's another fast, you know, she sees that as another portal of some kind, that Deadwood, she's destined to be there. And she confides in Milch and Milch in a very practical way says, look, the, the, the work stands on its own and all this other stuff is bullshit. Yeah, Milch was um, a great supporter. And once again, you couldn't write this, but how Shakespearean, where she's now coming into her own, she's actually perhaps going to write under her own name uh, during Deadwood, but all of the deceit, all the lies catch up for her, catch up with her, and then her whole world crashes right on her season on Deadwood. It's very interesting. Yeah, but she doesn't write as herself on Deadwood. Well, because it came to an end before uh, that, you know. She was writing as Emily. She, well, she, yes, she was, uh, Emily Frazier was yet another character who was singing in the band that you referred to, Thistle. That uh, wasn't Speedy? Emily Frazier and Speedy, to me, I saw as the exact same person, almost like Speedy was a nickname. Yeah. And Emily Frazier became the real name. Yeah. That's how I interpreted right, it. Right. But yet, right, that's uh, how I it's still it. interesting to have yet another character in this universe she created. So she's on the set of Deadwood. Yes. And in the shit hits the fan. Yeah. And then her life, literally, she gets excommunicated by the literary community. She's she's labeled a pariah. You know, basically on the, her forehead is F for fraud. Yeah. She's financially ruined. And um, and that becomes really the end. She's curled up in a ball for no, a number of years until I come along. What it, well, really? Well, why does Milch hang? Does Milch hang her out to dry? No, no. I'm not saying about hung up to dry. I'm so no, no. I'm but, saying that like even when the shit hit the fan. Oh, he stood by her. He did. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Mm. And still stands by her. Yeah. And so does Billy Corgan. Mm. Let's get her in here. Sounds good. All right. That was Jeff Fierzig, the director, 
Uh, and I think that lays out the story. But now we're going to talk to Laura, the the mastermind, the 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 brilliant, uh, fragmented mastermind who behind this whole thing, who uh, I love, uh, and I you know I definitely connected with almost immediately. We have some similar issues, but I, I don't know why. She, it was just a very moving and compelling conversation to me. I think it's important that I tell you now that that I mentioned with Jeff that David Milch, the director uh, and writer and creator of, of Deadwood, is involved in this. Well, Milch is, uh, by his own admission and reputation, another genius madman who's uh, definitely had his own struggles. And, and the way he factors into this, not unlike Billy Corrigan, who, who Laura saw as a portal and as a um, confidant uh, she saw she watched Deadwood and and knew that she had to be part of it and she approached David Milch and David and told David Milch uh, the entire story of the JT Leroy uh, uh, arc event uh, 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 theatrical opera whatever you want to call it and he he heard it he understood it he supported Laura and 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 became sort of a personal savior to her, and 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 sort of framed it for her in a way that was, you know, correct and understandable. That the art is what is important. And now I have a conversation with Laura Albert, and it's uh, it's powerful. And there are issues discussed that are that yeah. I guess I should prepare you for. Some people say I should do this sometimes, but we do talk about. Uh, sexual abuse and and it is an emotional conversation that's what i'm telling you it's it's moving stuff all right this is me and laura albert laura albert i prefer the french how's the french laura albert yeah <laughs> doesn't that guy laura albert what are you gonna do with that i don't know I, i'm mark maron i'll take the french mark maron oh. i like <laughs> maron that kind of maron 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 how many episodes of Deadwood did you write? I didn't write any of them, and nobody wrote any of them. It's all Mr. Milch. It's a lie agreed upon. That every genius work, yeah, every word, yeah, that's it's David all him. Milch. Yes, completely. Well, because I know that towards the end of the documentary and the end of the <clears throat> you know before things got uh, uh, bad, you were on set, and it seemed like you were going to do some work on there. Yeah. But well, it, you write you write an episode, and then he he write, Oh, okay. Yeah. He uh, guts it and writes it. He takes an essence, mm-hmm. and then there's a reason why there's a genius continuity. Because it's and all- he doesn't need the money. Or, well, uh, he was very graceful about passing on the credit. It's almost like everyone should have their 15 minutes of JT. Everyone should have their 15 minutes of being David Milch. <laughs> right. So I, I watched the whole movie, and I was talking to uh, to Jeff there, the director. That yeah, at the time of all this happening, like I had heard it, about it, but I was not in the worlds where it had a direct bearing on my life. You know, it, I just knew the name J.T. Leroy. I knew that that something happened, that it was a, a, a great uh, performance art piece or a tremendous fraud of some kind. But uh, I didn't know the details until I watched this film. It's like Haley's comment. We know we didn't get smashed to bits. Right. Well, someone did. Well, once upon a time, yeah, but you know, it's going to be a while till it comes again, right? Unlike a phone sex session, right? But but in watching it and in watching you tell your story of it, 
I found it to be uh, like there were moments where I was watching you and I'm like, I don't know about her. And then there were moments where like, nah, I like her. And then there were moments like, oh, this is great. You know, like, you know, you sort of grow with the relationship and watching you in the movie. It sort of has its own arc as well. I know. You know, what's funny is the what? same thing happens to me when I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. How the fuck is she going to get out of this? <laughs> what the fuck did this bitch? T- oh, this is messed up. She's right. really in a pickle. <laughs> It's really like one of those cliffhangers, you know, right. where it's like, what, what? Yeah, I now, know. Now, like when you, the thing I guess like at the core of it is that this writing came out of you and the writing stands on its own and it's great writing. These are beautiful books and they, they d- deserve to be read and, and continue to be read. So w- after all is said and done and whatever you went through, you know, what are your feelings about the actual work? Well, uh, first of all, thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's... um. It hasn't been that long since I've actually been sitting here physically and hearing people say that to my face. <laughs> so it's all very As new. Laura. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because uh, the other day I was doing LA uh, Times review of books uh-huh. and I signed a book and I signed to them and I signed it to J.T. Leroy and I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> It just, I was wondering how you would sign it. No, I, it, it keeps happening. I had to sign a whole box of books for a promotional for Goodreads, and yeah. I signed them JT Leroy, and then I realized, oh, shit. Yeah. I, and then I had to go back in, and my signature is so bad. Your real signature. Yeah, I got JT Leroy down. Uh, oh, yeah? My son has it down, because I would have him sign books, How old's he now? He's 18. How's that going? It, it, it's he's wonderful. He's so cool. He's got such a great sense of humor. I mean, you got it. You know, he's he's great. What did he think of the movie? His first thing he said was, "Mama, yeah, yeah? who's that woman at the opening?" <laughs> I'm like, um, "Oh, that's um, Winona Ryder." He's like, yeah, "Who's that?" Yeah. Oh, really? That... Uh, yeah. He didn't grow up with a celebrity. He's not into celebs. He's into artists. You know, it's like artists. It's like, yeah, he's real. And know? how's his re- the relationship with his dad? He's good. You know, they're how's good. yours? My it, good, yeah, it's good. We both love our kid, and yeah. we have moments of connecting, which is really beautiful. You know, we were together for eighteen years. So when you watch the movie, and and how much in in retrospect, because like I was talking with Jeff, and I also know a little bit about this from my own journey in life. Mm-hmm. That if you are fragmented to whatever degree, mm-hmm. and you suffer from from trauma of any kind that that disrupted your ability to have a a full sense of self correct yeah so after this whole arc of uh, obviously it, it got to an extreme that you know like w- when you really think about you know your compulsion towards calling helplines that lasted mm-hmm. a lifetime mm-hmm. and and speaking through these male characters and and seeking help and and love through these characters that uh you know when you when you went through the 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 tunnel of of this massive charade in a way mm-hmm. right and then it all came crumbling down and you're left with with you mm. do do you feel now like you because you were talking like speedy out there and it came very quickly and i imagine that jt leroy could come very quickly but i but do you have distance from those things now i assume you know laura was always there yeah it's not like um, Sybil, you know, right. which I think was just you a had Hollywood. Control. I think that was just a Hollywood version anyway mm-hmm. of um, garden, garden variety disassociation. Mm-hmm. 
So I really just think that's a whole area that really needs to be looked at. I think I'm not unique. I think there are many women and men yeah. and people who go through, uh, how many people go through abuse and they talk about disassociating, seeing yourself from the ceiling. Right. I, I do that. I right. can do that. Right. And I was always there. It's not like there was some Laura that was never there. Right. Um, I think what I don't call hotlines anymore that happened, that need just kind of lifted uh, probably somewhere around the time before Billy, it, it, and even calling- Before Corrigan? Yeah, before Corrigan. I assume most people live in my head, so yeah. I, <laughs> sure. Before, so that's, so we got BC and- and BC uh, and AD, right, right, <laughs> exactly, literally, God. <laughs> <laughs> and Milch would be DM. Uh-huh. We start to sound like a Robitussin commercial. <laughs> um, so, uh, so- you know, you know how like uh, conjoint—I can't say the word—conjoined twins. Yeah, yeah. So one is often stronger than the other, and they share a lung. Let's say. Yeah. So I would say that Terminator, which later became JT, yeah. the separate beings. Actually, yeah. it was a morphing. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the stronger one, and it was like I was the appendage. Right. And but slowly, without paying attention, almost through this whole process. I became stronger and I was breathing on my own. Yeah. With my Laura own lungs. Was. Correct. Yeah. And you see that in the film. It was somewhere towards the right before, right around Billy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was very organic. Yeah. So subtly that you, I didn't notice it happening. Yeah. And it, it needed to be cut, the cord connecting. Right. But I never would have done it. Right. If you hadn't. It had to truth. be done for me. It had. It's like oh, you know, God it. doing it. for you what you cannot do for yourself. Sure, it's a lot like drugs in a way. Right. But, well, but also giving up addiction. You know, yeah. God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'll, I'll tell you a story. Okay. This is kind of jumping ahead, but at the beginning of Deadwood yeah. of the year, yeah. Milch comes to me and he says, "How do you want your name to appear in the credits?" Yeah. And I say, "J.T. Leroy," without missing a beat. And he gives this kind of sad Eeyore. And he, knowing. you'd already told him this whole story. Oh, I told him the, right. the day after I met him. Yeah, he, I met him at the after party uh, for wrapping on season two because mm-hmm. they were still shooting while they were showing. Yeah, and we were staying at Carrie Fisher's house, and Carrie got along great with JT, not with me. Did right. no Speedy, which isn't me, but didn't get along. But with did Speedy. Carrie know? No, she didn't. Oh, know. Okay, so she just knew you as Speedy. Right. Yeah. And she didn't like Speedy, but yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you gonna do? Who what did? <laughs> there no that you know what? There were people who did. There were people down with the speedster, right? Okay, yeah. Don't don't come after my speedster. Okay. So um uh so he we I gave him the books yeah. and then he read them that night. Yeah. And then he called and invited us out for dinner. Mm-hmm. And I told him right away and i knew i would i just knew i would i knew there was no way everything had made me ready to tell him and i knew there was no way i was not going to tell him and he he got it instantly there was no like what the fuck michigan kind of thing is this yeah he got what that we the the entire arc of who you were and why you did what you did well, and no, he didn't he 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 understood he did you know the rest is details he got the essence yeah and the essence is what to you he said to me, your work is of service. Yeah. You're touched by God. I know I'm touched. <laughs> and uh, and then when everything came down, he said, 
you know, I got your back. So going back to the story of this is my problem. I it's the way I write in Paisley. I yeah. talk in Paisley, yeah. and maybe forty percent of the time I land it back to the sure. original point. So yeah. I'm gonna bring it on back. Okay. So what? Um, at the beginning of the year, how do you want your name to appear? It gives me a sad Eeyore look of okay, whatever you mm-hmm. know. He wanted you to use Laura. Towards the end of the year, this yeah. is after the cord been cut. I was going back and forth because I had a young son. So I was coming, you know, Jeff was taking care of Trevor. Trevor was in school. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult not having his mom there. So I was going back and forth. And meanwhile, all hell's breaking loose because I'm being outed. Yeah. I come back to Deadwood. And this is after everything's done. It's cord cut. I'm revealed, fully outed. He comes to me again. And he says... How do you want your name to appear in the credits? Yeah. It's uh, it, it it sounds like biblical uh-huh. biblical almost, you know. Yeah. And I say, uh, you know, I mumble and I say, mm, it's Laura, Laura Albert. I can't even say my name. Yeah. I didn't even have the French. Right. And he said to me, "Oh man," he said to me, "That's what I had hoped." And uh, yeah, he gave me his. He gave me. You know, there's this Robert Penn Warren poem that he always quoted, and it's, this is the process whereby pain in its pastness is converted to the future tense of joy. Hmm. And I, I always come back to that. And and the other one that he always quotes, which I should have tattooed on my face, the secret subject of any story worth telling is time but you can never say its name. Which to me is a fancy way of saying it's in God's time, not your fucking time, bitch. Right. So that's like, it's powerful. And, you know, and I'm happy for you. And, you know, in watching the thing, like as somebody who's a creative person myself and certainly likes uh, to see things turned inside out and upside down and fucked with, Mm -hmm. uh, not you, but what, (laughs) what, what, It's happened. uh, I know. It's been known to happen. (laughs) but but the when it when it all started when you know you I, I imagine the longest relationship you had uh as jt with anybody who's with that therapist on the phone when when i would pick up to make a, a call yeah i mean i mean taking it back i i always when i would go to sleep at night i would watch stories of boys it was it was like um and i thought everyone had this i remember i my sister was maybe four, so I was three and a half years older than her, and she couldn't sleep. We shared a room, and I said to her, "Well, you know, why don't you just? What about the boys? You know, she's like, I can't think, I, I can't sleep." And yeah, she's like, "What are you talking about?" And I'm like, "Well, what do you think about before you go to sleep? Because that's always how that put me out. I would just watch the movie, and it was always a, a different boy, and they were going through some." horrible thing right and i would just watch that and they would either be rescued or they would die right and i never knew which way i mean i would cry it was like turning into your own soap opera oh yeah i remember all the old ladies would watch as the world turns and it was like oh right oh you love me kind of thing and i had boys that were being raped and beaten and that was my soap opera that i watched every night in your head yeah yeah but i could i could also go into it in the day, but at nighttime, that's how I went to sleep. And sometimes I, they would just keep me up and I couldn't sleep because it was just so sad if they died. And I would try to change the ending and make them rescued, but I couldn't. They, they Some got rescued and some died. 
And do you, what do you think this sort of involuntary exercise <clears throat> of imagination was for you? I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, you did suffer, you know, physical and sexual abuse as a very young person. And did you, so do you think you were were acting that stuff out mentally through the boys? Well, I think it was a release. It's like if yeah. you squeeze a balloon, it's got to go somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I played, like Piaget, you know, talks about kids playing, and I played it out in my Barbie dolls. Nobody wanted to play Barbie dolls with me because my shit was scary. To me, I was just playing real. They got raped, mm -hmm. you know? They had sexual abuse. They got physical abuse, you know? And they were like, oh, what should I wear? And it's like, eh, I can't play like that. Now, when... Because it seems like, you know, in terms of parenting, that you, you, obviously your father was absent and your mother was selfish and abusive no you know you know that my mother you know it, it's understanding where they came from my right. mother is first generation american everyone escaped jews yeah. from from the horror that they survived yeah okay and her father was abusive i mean what what did he survive right and I mean, these were people who were escaping and there was no like, let me call a, a hotline, get yeah. help. I mean, they're dealing with, oh, here comes, here's another pogrom. And yeah. I, hearing the stories of they kept money to, because when the the Cossacks came, you had to go and bail out and pay off the guards right. to get your husband out and everything's burned and the escape. So my mom was graduated college when she was 17. She was highly highly intelligent yeah. and she raised her siblings and she never got therapy she was yeah. the highest winner on jeopardy they 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 found some footage of her on sale of the century jeopardy she was on ten thousand dollar pyramid she was very creative and she was not able to be an artist she wrote under a male pseudonym and as a journalist yeah mm -hmm. oh yeah she i i met marvin hamlish sammy khan she would take me with her i met ginger rogers backstage and yeah. i got to see you go artist to artist yeah. okay she she debunked this whole fan worship thing she told me how it worked with frank sinatra where they would pay girls to faint she's like that's fucking bullshit you never give your power away worshiping with a, being a fan and that was great about the punk world because i didn't understand people all into like led zeppelin and what i'm gonna go pay money to see a spot on the stage baby i love you i mean yeah. fuck that shit right with yeah. punk i was like calling ian mckay for minor threat yeah. i had all their numbers mike muir suicidal tendencies and i was a journalist fuck yeah. you i'm gonna stand toe to toe yeah and uh my mom she did not have therapy and she was she this is what happens this we when we don't treat trauma this is what fucking happens and i am sure if i did not have the benefit of the group home and the therapy such that i was able to allow in i didn't know what kind of mother i would be i'm sure that I would have been an abusive mother. I've never touched my son. I never hit him. I, But I find things that do come out of my mouth that I'm like, oh my God, I know where that's from. And I find I feel that, that void in front of me and I know what that is. And so my mother did not do to me what was done to her, but she did some of it. And if my son chooses to have children, I hope that he can further stop the cycle. And yeah. that's all we can do. And that's the importance of giving voice to all of this stuff. Right. So I love my mom. Sure. And I, I, I deal with this. She was, a, I have no doubt that she loved me. 
and would kill for me and also kill me at the same time. <laughs> she did. She yeah. tried. She tried to set fire to me in my room, and she felt deeply wounded. When when she would get angry, she was so hurt herself that she would snap. She would literally snap, and her capacity to control herself to stop was not there. And that was because of the damage that she went through. Right. And this is something you've grown to understand. I understood it then. You did. But I couldn't really articulate it, but I always had that compassion and understanding. And I also knew that I didn't have that capacity to battle like that. Right. And and also that because of the, you know, her sort of, do you feel like she was threatened by you? No, no, I, you know, it's things, uh, I think it, it's so complex and yeah, I'm exploring it all. Yeah, I In think when book. I, yeah, I, I think that she recognized that I was very, my mother's kind of like colorblind with emotions. Right. Okay, so where I am an absorbent sponge and I catch everything, everything. Right. She, nothing. All right, so she can insult you and have no idea that she just like to put a dagger in your heart. Right. And that's an interesting combination to have sure. with each other. But she also re- was able to recognize that I had this sensitivity. So she would often use my ability to scope out a situation and people because she recognized that she had no fucking clue. Is she still around? No. She After the trial, it killed her. It killed her. It killed her. She was in a coma a week after the trial. Your trial? Right. Yep. They sued her. They sued everyone around me. So I, I think some of the questions mm-hmm. I have in, in watching the movie and, in, in, you know, kind of, you know, coming out on, on your side, thankfully, is that um, because I think the writing is great and I think they're important books. And, you know, even what you're talking about now and even what, you know, you, what Milch mentioned was that if you are of service and obviously, you know, JT were always spoke to something. It spoke to an injury. It spoke to trauma. It spoke to a, a perseverance of spirit. It, it, it spoke to surviving, right? Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. and, and it was actually your your vehicle for survival in a lot of ways. Well, to me, it, it it's the way an oyster creates a pearl out of irritation. It's not like, ooh, I want to sell this at Saks, you know? Right. So as the, the whole, um, the the everything starts to snowball, and once you enlist Savannah, your sister-in-law, to play JT, and now you've got your character Speedy, and you're out doing the world, and it becomes yeah. this, you know, a, a you know, theatrical event that only you're really aware of, and, and Jeff and, and Savannah, really, right? That's it, until you cop to Corrigan. No, no, there were, there were, there were people who knew. Oh, it, there were. It, it was, it was like a well-kept secret. But do you were at, at that, first? It was very tight. It was very tight, and then it's slowly like a pair of like underwear. It, it sure yeah. like anything else, right? Right. It gets, so, but at the in, in the beginning of that, you know, where you, you, we see some footage of you at one of the first readings, right? Of a, and, and there you were feeling uncomfortable. I would have died. Proud. I would have fucking died if anyone knew. So the initial intent of all this was really to protect you because you couldn't handle it. It, JT was asbestos gloves to handle material I otherwise couldn't. But it, once it became public, though, and you you yeah. you enrolled and enlisted people to play along to to keep protecting that person, that was not some sort of grand artistic event you were structuring. It was still to insulate Laura Albert from from the public. But but it's not only that he wanted his own body. I right. mean, they all the boys that came through that didn't die wanted their own body. So you felt that you had that relationship with these boys in your mind. Yeah. I mean, there was a, I moved to San Francisco because I had called a hotline and there was a woman named Beverly Mesh yeah. who worked at a hotline 
And she spoke to, I don't remember who the initial boy was, but he had, a multiple, he had multiple personalities, and she wanted them to move out to California so she could help them. And they ended up outing me to yeah, her. right. Which I was like, don't you understand that that ends it? Because that's usually very often when, I mean, I would have therapists or people who would talk, and usually the relationship would peter out ones that went on for longer than just a night or whatever. You know, that's the thing. You wouldn't believe how many dysfunctional people, I would call hotlines and I would find like an alcoholic that works in a bar. There were so many times I would call a hotline, a crisis hotline, and they wanted sex with my boy and I would do it. On the phone. Oh my God, you would not believe it. And I did it. I totally accommodated all the time. Because that's why I was running the mafia's uh, phone sex lines in New York. My mom put in a phone sex line for me so I can contribute to the family. And I loved it. I was training women, other women, to do phone sex. Because I believe we have a real crisis in this country. There is, they are not properly trained phone sex workers. What, 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 what happens when they're not properly trained? Oh, they fucking, when a guy calls, you should be able to seamlessly accommodate his fantasy without having to ask him what he fucking wants. It shouldn't start off with you like, just, oh, baby, you want me to suck your fucking cock? Yeah, yeah. Tell me what you want here. Right. I, you often they tell the person who books the call the basics, you know, like they want to wear panties or, you know, they want a basic yeah. one off. Yeah. Yeah. But I can, I make it feel like I'm psychic and I take your little clues and I have to teach them how to kept those clues so you're training phone sex people i was great yeah so and again that was something that i i realized from working with people it you it's something you can't train someone you need like when people would tell me oh what you did with jt that's so brilliant i'm gonna do that whole thing it's like well take a healthy dose of mashugana right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, how does a, a, the universe form? It's like a random accident and a little bit of oxygen. You right. Well, do you think that, well, I think you're, you're, you're an empath to a degree. You, you, you have a, a, an innate uh, empathy to, to sort of lock into somebody's needs in some bizarre way. Yeah. I guess my question is in, in a more sort of solid sense of the narrative of, of what everyone knew as you know what happened is that you developed these relationships with very you know brilliant artists and you know you've archived all this stuff and a lot of people were hurt mm-hmm. and felt betrayed and and uh, were angry you know pro- you know probably you know irredeemably so i imagine mm-hmm. but like of the relationships that you built with say Gus Van Zant or Dennis Cooper or um any of the other writers are there any that, you know, after all was said and done and after the, you know, the thing collapsed that you still are friends with? Well, you know what? One thing that made it really hard is when the media was coming, I it was very counterintuitive. Everyone else who wrote fake memoir, and again, yeah. these books were published as fiction, right. they would call the press conference and say... You got me. I'm not really uh, mm-hmm. uh, an albino rhinoceros from Antarctica. Yeah, you know, right? I I didn't do that. It, it, I went the opposite, where I'd people testifying because to me it, it's fighting for my life. It's like Tinkerbell. You know, we have to say we believe, we believe, and and he'll live. And um, it 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 made people angry because it's like, why don't you just fucking give it up already? Just give it up. Give what up? That the fact that we know you're busted. Right. And it was, nope, sorry. Nope. Right. Still real. 
Right, right. <laughs> it's like, wait, no, you're totally busted. Nope, still real. Yeah. It's like the kid who has cookies all over their face and <laughs> the cookie jar is knocked over and you're like, I'm sorry, you can't prove it. Where's the footage? Yeah, and you wouldn't come out. Uh, no, because again, it's like, you know, like Milt said, that's what I had hoped. I'm like, he's still hoping it ain't happening. <laughs> and then when the New York Times, when Warren St. John would call people, he told them I was being charged with mail fraud and uh, it violating the Patriot Act. So imagine you get a call and you find out that the person that you have a close connection to is not who they say they are, which is pretty fucking devastating and mind-blowing. And then there's probably, and that there's possible criminal charges, which I was like, what the fuck is, is, is like mailing penis bones across state lines? Is that like a What was that charge? There was none. Oh. There was nothing. That's why I was, I was like, is mailing raccoon penis bones across state lines? Is that it? You know, I, yeah. I have no idea. And the, the the Patriot Act, they said it in the trial. They accused me of violating the Patriot Act. But we always flew under our own passport. So that was, you know. Not yeah. So it, it made people really terrified. And there were people who came and asked me and... It, that was really powerful to be able to step back. And it was hard because I didn't quite understand it. That's why I couldn't take any of those opportunities. People were saying to me, nobody's going to care about you in seven months. And I'm like, well, nobody cared about me seven months ago. So what do I lose? Yeah. I, if if other people are going to tell your story, I'm like, well, well, that's painful. But if that's how it has to be, because I don't understand it. I mean, when I would sit in the room, in the writer's room, so many of the characters, they were a mystery unto themselves. And I, I said to David, you know, I, I relate. And he's like, I hope you, I hoped you were paying attention because I got it. I was a mystery unto myself. Mm-hmm. And I could not go do a celebrity tell-all because that's not what it was about. And if that meant dying misunderstood, I had enough people that I trusted and knew who I was. It's fine if the world wants to say that I'm the Antichrist. And about those relationships, you know, a lot of people had those conversations with me and they got it when I connected the dots, when they allowed me to give them my roadmap to crazy because you had like white men of privilege, I'll say, which were saying they were, in a way, they were putting their motives. She did it to meet celebrities. She did it to uh, meet, you know, for whatever fakakta reason, you know, yeah. and it's like, again, part of the reason why I wanted to work with Jeff was he understood my paradigm. He's he's Jewish. He comes from the East Coast. The main thing also is that he comes from the punk scene. Right. So if your paradigm, it, it, it turns it upside down. When they were saying my motives, it's actually upside down and you need someone who can get that. So when they spoke to me, they were either mostly they were available to that because again if you came with the work all of this stuff is in the work it's i already all the tells are there there's a scene in the movie i'm telling gus and i i remember this i'm writing the scene where the cherry vanilla the kid the boy is revealed to be what he's not they've he said he was something different, and then they worshipped him, okay? They turned him into Leroy, the king. <laughs> yeah. And now they found out that he's not who he said he was, and they're hunting him with torches, and they're going to kill him. And he's hiding in the woods, and he's naked, and Pooh comes and says, finds him and says, what were you thinking? And he said, I didn't mean for any of this to happen. <laughs> I, You know, I get chills because... <laughs> 
when I wrote that, and I saved the keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> I I I was I was crying because I knew I was writing the future. Yeah. Mark, there there was no JT. There was Terminator. There was no JT yet. No Savannah. I just given birth to a son, and I'm watching this unfold. And I'm writing the future, and I know there's fucking nothing I can do to stop it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how's your relationship with Savannah? It, you know, she'll always be family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, again, it depends what people were there for. And let me just say this. There were a lot of people, like I said, I know how to make a trade. Yeah. And there were people that were very happy that they had an underage boy that had no parents that was a professional prostitute and was available. And a lot of phone sex, sexual relationships were entered into. Again, if we wanted to catch a predator, guess what would happen? I could be a 70-year-old woman with tits down to my knees and guess who's going to jail? Mm-hmm. Not me. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have those recordings, perhaps, sure. maybe. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, trades were made, and so their reaction might be informed by the fact that their best orgasm was had with a forty-year-old middle-aged woman, and not a little twelve-year-old blonde-haired, blue-eyed professional prostitute that conveniently didn't have parents. Mm-hmm. So, what in talking about motives? Mm-hmm. What what do you see your motive as now? When you talk about everyone else's motives, when you mm. look at the story and where you've landed, and now you're doing the work as yourself, um, what what do you feel in retrospect you were moving towards? You know what was really difficult mm-hmm. was when we would go do a reading, and people were lined up around the block. Yeah, and I would go with Speedy, and yeah. I would ask people why they were there. And they'd be like, why the fuck should I talk to her, right? Yeah. And, but when they would, they would talk about what it meant to them. And they would go to Savannah and she didn't have those experiences and she couldn't be there with them, okay? You know, in 12th step, you get to keep it by giving it away, right? Mm-hmm. And what was feeding me was, was standing there with those people and having that commune, right? And yeah. them talking about the work. And when I heard that, like like, like I said in the beginning, mm-hmm. I haven't had that much experience. The books have been out for how long? And to have someone look at me and say what they thought, it's this is new for me, signing the books under my name. <laughs> this is new for me. This is the process whereby the pain in its pastness is converted to the future tense of joy, right? Mm-hmm. So I get to stand there with people and hold them, right? Mm-hmm. And everything in the past has made me ready. I have been there with people, and you know, I feel them coming. I see it, and they're, they're shaking. And there's a way that they're holding themselves. And I know. And it's like all the, all the shit of like, um, do I look okay? Is this all right? Am I, am I that's, that's a way. And it's another person coming, and I'm there in my body. And we talk about how you just show up and do the next indicated fucking thing. Because being in the world is really hard. And that's what it's fucking about. How do you make it 
different? How do you let people know? And, and what I found out is that the secret to that, Mark, is craft. Mm-hmm. I've listened to you, right? And there's something that you're able to do where you break stuff down and make it digestible. So people, it's, it's something that people's almost on the edge of and you articulate it so it's like that aha and it 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 just it's almost like a laxative for your bowels i'm constipated mm. right now and all the girls were only talking about i think shitting is the number one literature metaphor mm-hmm. how do you move that shit out mm-hmm. it breaks it down it's how do you take problems of the soul and the spirit and transform them into issues of craft and techniques so it lodges in somebody so they care about something they didn't before so they can move out of the illusion of that isolation of self, right? Yeah. Because that's the only way we get out of our suffering. Right. And and, and showing up and being honest. I, mean, I, was, I, was, um, I was in Brazil. Brazil was the first country that recognized... Um, no problem. They put the books out under my name. They invited me down with Alice Walker. Mm-hmm. And I'm signing books, and this girl comes up to me, and I, and I recognize, and she's shaking. She tells me she's lost her English. She apologizes. She takes a picture, and I, I, I get really, you know, Maria Abramowitz, I, I think mm-hmm. my epitaph should be the artist is present, mm-hmm. because that's what I really love. It's like, to be super fucking present with someone. None of that like state, you know, worship shit. I, I, I went inside with her and I'm like, here's my email. You write to me, okay? It's okay. I loved Brazil and I felt a connection to all the people there. It was, they did a play about me, it was a punk rock martyr, this you'll love. In the play, at the trial scene, because you know they're Christian, they have me with my hair pulled back and I'm wearing a cross. <laughs> so in Brazil, I get to be the 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 the, the, the goy, the, yeah. the shiksa. <laughs> so I, I felt I'd go back to Brazil. I, sure enough, I get invited to a, a film festival to be a judge. Yeah, and I'm like, yes. The day I'm leaving, I, I get an email. It's from Delisa. That girl. She sent me a photo and she said, I don't know if you remember. And then she tells me that a family member is sexually molesting her and that she knew she needed to tell me. And I said to her, this is where it's, this is God. I said, I'm coming there today. If I didn't have all this documented in email, like like everything, you just, this kind of shit happens all the fucking time with me, like all the time. So mm-hmm. no one's no one's surprised anymore when coincidence is, right. coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous, baby. That's just it. And I said to her, I'm coming down there today. Her city, Brasilia, okay? Of all the cities I've been to, that was the one. Yeah. And I asked her permission to contact people that I already knew. Uh, that that we're going to be there to get services. I said, let's let's meet with your mom. I did. I I know how to do stuff. Yeah, and 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 we did. I went down there. We got the abuse to stop. We met with her mom. She got therapy services. Uh, she's a beautiful young lady. She went to school. She's a singer. I'm in touch with her. I, I can't tell you how many experiences like that. And you know, none of that other shit matters. That is it. And that's that's why I knew Deadwood. That's why I knew Corgan. It's it's those commune of spirits. It's you how do you keep showing up to the how do you keep showing up 
in faith to this fucking process of life. That is it. Every day you have to choose fear or faith, sometimes every moment. And how do you break it down to do the next indicated thing? So, you know, you know that saying, it gets better? Yeah. It gets better. Bull fucking shit. You know, sometimes it doesn't get better. I really love that. There are all these people that are famous and have like such rad lives and it gets better. Maybe for you, motherfucker. But when I was in a group home eating state peanut butter, if you tell me it gets better, I'm like, uh, yeah, like when? <laughs> and and what it's like, you know, sometimes you just have to buy yourself another fucking day. And what I would tell people, it's just like, man, when they see a fat, girl and they want to roll their eyes or a fat boy right and it's just like feeling this disgust of you have no self-control that that's what was the importance of that movie precious okay mm -hmm. you know precious has a lot of problems like the the dark characters are bad and the lighter skin are good you know yeah. it's got issues but this is what was so important about that movie it played sundance and i was reading about this it won like some audience appreciation or whatever the award you know and the marketers, there was an article about this. It was like Washington Post or some some um, newspaper. And they were saying the marketers don't know what to do with this film. Of course they don't. Because you have a protagonist that's morbidly obese. She's tall. She's dark. She ain't cute. Can we be trusted to give a fuck? Of course we can't. And you know what was beautiful? We did. <laughs> we did. And if I had that growing up, maybe I wouldn't have had to go. And like, like Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg in her comedy routine, she puts a yellow T-shirt on her head. And she said, look at my long blonde hair and my blue, blue eyes. And that was her being as a child as she would play because she knew who had the power. Because when I was a kid, okay, we're like the same age. Mm -hmm. So in 74, it was illegal to run away until 1974. Okay, they weren't even calling breast cancer. You couldn't even say breast. And I know this because my mother's cousin is Betty Rollin, who wrote First You Cry, Mary Tyler Moore Plater. Before that was chest cavity. So we're not even fucking talking about breast cancer. We sure as shit, we're not talking about sexual abuse, physical abuse, any of that shit. Couldn't run away. So when they started finally doing the after school specials, what do you think it was? It was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little boy that was on those TV shows. Very cute. All those shows, like fucking, you know, when they would do Huck Finn and, and Tom Sawyer, they were always so cute. And boys could be mischievous. Where girls, well, if you're going to, you better be like, a, there was Taxi Driver, Pretty Baby, yeah. so you could be a pretty, so your choice was that, right? right? And I got it. If I'm going to be heard, I didn't see fat, chubby Jewish girls. And whenever I would talk about what was going on, there there was no, trans was a scary thing. There was sweet transvestite from, yeah. you know, Rocky Horror yeah. Picture Show. Trans right. was like fucking, that was like, a, that, a rock, that was a horror show. That was what it was called. Right. Right? Yeah. I had no articulation. And also the fact that I had no choice about my sexuality and how, what I felt for me you know, um, violence and sex are connected, okay? I do not, I, for, for, for me to feel, to, ha to have an orgasm, to, I need to think about being hurt. And that, that's true, right? And I would never say that, okay? That's, that's it. I have no choice. I don't know how you disconnect those wires. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. And I, you know, I've experimented doing that. And I feel maybe if it was my choice, that would be something. But, I, you know, and it'd be like, fine, you know, go to Folsom Street Fair. And if, you know, you can't beat them, so to speak, join them. But 
it wasn't my choice, so I have issues with doing that. And I want to disconnect it, but I don't fucking know how. Yeah. And so ever since I could remember, it was always like that. And that's that's shameful to me. It I I I understand it. And being able to talk about it, it's like, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets. And it's very, it is liberating talking about it. And I know it creates a space for other people to do it. Part of why I created JT, yes, it's to protect myself because I had no words for this. Yeah. And that's directly connected to the abuse when you were three. Yeah. That that guy who said you were a bad girl for feeling joy. Had, because sex. he spanked me and yeah. he touched me at the same time and the wires got crossed and and that was that was it and yeah. I, I knew I remember my mother when she was dating she got this um she would do like uh, letters you know you didn't have internet so she ran an ad and she yeah. got a letter and she's reading me a letter from a guy who was into S&M and she's like oh this guy's so fucking sick this is sick this is sick and that's how that was seen. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I'm into. And I'm really fucking sick. I am so fucking sick. And what well, I, I think that where how we got here, that what is beautiful about all of this, you know, outside of the fact that you're working on, on you know, putting this stuff together in a real memoir, is that people are appreciating the work despite all the shit that distracted you know the focus from what is the work and that you know you're you're sort of like survivalist almost you know whatever the if it's pathological or if it's god-given that your perseverance past all this stuff that happened you know obviously not i'm not talking about childhood abuse but the media circus that revolved Mm -hmm. around you know how you publicly resolved you know in an in an intuitive way your personal emotional and psychological issues that that stuff is now sort of and because you didn't engage until this film right and in t- until talking to me that you know an audience for the literature and for the writing and for what it represents and for what david milch calls you know being of service as being the pinnacle of what art should do is, is happening, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and you know, I really had an inner sense that the right person would come. It's like the um, Cinderella shoe, yeah. And and the gala, we will sell no wine before it's time. I I also hope that I wasn't so damaged and defensive that I wouldn't recognize when the right one came. And because they were they were people were coming, and sure. I really wanted to be rescued because. I after the trial, I felt the gate go down. I said, "I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't write yeah. anymore." So, when when Jeff came, and I saw his film, and I saw, "Wow, he's allowing." Dennis Johnston. Yeah, De- Devil yeah. and Daniel Johnston. Daniel, yeah, I'm sorry, Daniel Johnston. That he allowed Daniel, who actually tried to kill people. Okay, which, as far as I know, unless I really am split, and they just haven't found the bodies yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I he tried to kill people, and yet you really care and you understand, right? Yeah. And that it's so organic, and he's allowed to rest transparently on the grace that gave him rise, and and the lack of moralization, right? And I just thought, okay, because I I have no filters. 
All right, so people, you got JT's truth, and there's mine. I didn't make a mistake telling JT's story. Savannah, all the time. She once said that JT was from South Virginia. And what I realized is it didn't matter. It's like Peter Sellers. Yeah. She could say anything, and they weren't paying attention because the felt authenticity of the work carried them through. So we were on the cloud, and the cloud was built by, like, it's like Hogwarts, okay? So it's all make-believe you're wa- you're finding the portal to Hogwarts in the train station, <laughs> and it doesn't matter what the fuck she says. Yeah. So when, when he came, and I recognize that he's someone that I can completely give it everything away to, right. because I didn't have anything edited. The tapes were made for me to... I, I would tape because my my mother was on quiz shows, like I said, and she had won an eight to eight. I mean, a real reel to reel track, and yeah. she would sit me in front of it, and I would let. I I always did accents and yeah. voices and things like that. Yeah. And let me say this about the speedy bad accent: I have a very good ear, and I will absorb whatever I hear. But it's a short life, okay? It's like <laughs> it's like um. It's like the battery from when, you know, two, yeah, two sure. gigabyte, whatever. Nah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So anyway, so so it slides all the time. So what I did to cover it was Speedy was not just British. She was from South, she was from South Africa, New Zealand, Australia. She lived and just to fuck things up, Israel. <laughs> you just covered yourself. Because <laughs> sometimes she puts in the Yiddishisms <laughs> and everything. So her accent could slide the fuck all over the place. It was sloshy. Well, look. Yeah. Obviously, we could talk forever. <laughs> I, I I like you a great deal, and I like the oh. books, and I and I'm just happy that uh, you know you came out of the hole and you gave the uh, you know you you trusted Jeff. He's didn't that, he do, it's doesn't great. it mind your I mean oh, yeah, it's great, and I'm I'm just like I I you know I want the books to have another life. From your lips to God's ears, as they say. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you for uh, what the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, man, after we talked, I, you know, I had to put myself back together. So, look, I would definitely see the doc, uh, author, the JT Leroy story, but also get these books, especially The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things and Sarah by JT Leroy, who spoke through Laura Albert and wrote through her. And Laura, I can't, I hope she, I hope she writes that memoir, man. All right, so don't forget you can still get my comedy special more later on WTF Pod, powered by Squarespace. Uh, there's a link on the homepage and the merch section. Okay, so good. Good? All right, I'll play a guitar for a minute.